some people are not coming to the table hungry, right? Because they are getting their needs met elsewhere. So that's a question that helps us be honest about what are the different levels of privilege and power that are coming to the table? Who's missing from the table, right? Like all of these things become exposed there and then we have to decide what we're gonna do about it. So that's another you know, way that it can be a gift to us. And, and, and then the challenge becomes how do we have an honest conversation about what all of this means and how we rectify it. You're listening to the Theopoetics Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Burnett, and my conversation today is with Mickey Scott Bay Jones. Mickey is a creative extremist for love and a justice doula working as a faith-rooted activist, organizer, and speaker. In this episode, Mickey and I discuss how to encourage continual awakening in communities taking action for justice. Our conversation reflects on the important work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the role of the table in bridging and creating connection, and how her perspective as an indigenous and womanist scholar informs her understanding of embodiment and her work of activism. For more information about our sponsors, ARC, visit artsreligionculture.org. Thanks for listening. I wanted to start maybe by, by saying that um, I noticed that on your website, you have called yourself a creative extremist for love uh, and a justice doula. Could you explain what that title means to you? Sure. The creative extremist for love actually comes from um, Dr. King's letter from a Bir- Birmingham jail. And uh, he basically, in the it's kind of in the, in the middle of the uh, letter. It's my kind of my favorite part of the letter. And he says, you know, that, that there are, you know, that they are calling him an extremist, you know, he's talking about, which is funny right now because we're kind of having this debate again in society about civility, right. And who is, who is causing violence. And we now have a really rosy, like nostalgic view of King. We are uh, given in school this kind of whitewashed washed version of him. My, my now 12 year old just studied um, the civil rights movement in school and they presented King as the, as the peaceful protester and, ML, and um, Malcolm X as the violent protester. And like, that is literally what he came home and said to me from his fifth grade class. And, you know, so we've forgotten or really were never told those of us who didn't live through it um, or weren't old enough to really remember it, that, you know, that everyone loved King at the time, but that's not so. And so he took this where people were calling him an extremist and in a violent way and said, you know what, actually there are violent extremists and that's, that's exactly what I'm against is, is the violence of the system and the violence of the American culture. And what we need is more creative extremists for love. And so I was like, all right, sign me up. I will be one of those. <laughs> I'm going to try and figure that out. And, and then the justice doula piece is really around that I was a birth doula, childbirth educator, lactation consultant, um, basically general mother baby specialist for over a decade. And so it was my job to help bring more, more and new life into the world by being beside families as they 
birth their baby. And that, that was all kinds of support, right? Informational support, physical support, emotional, spiritual, all the ways you can support a family when they are birthing a baby. And um, I have transferred those skills, the skills I learned as a doula, I've transferred those to helping pe people birth more love, justice, and shalom into the world as the justice doula. And the most important tools of a doula are her heart and hands. So yes, I can learn a bunch of things and I do have education. I do have um, a master's degree. Um, I do have a lot of experience. Um, but the main thing that I carry is that connection to my heart and hopefully to the heart of others. And then, um, you know, using my hands in, in beautiful ways. Yeah, it strikes me as though during this time in our country, we are a generation who's midwifing mm -hmm. justice. And there are these birth pangs of peace that I think are showing themselves amidst the conflict and the, and the terror, frankly, of, of what's happening in our country. So how do you see yourself bringing justice to birth? What, what, what sorts of trends are you noticing? What sorts of actions are you taking? Uh, to, to midwife justice in the midst of this, this tumult that we see in our society? Yeah, I mean, I, I even like bringing it, breaking it down into the midwife role and the doula role, having worked alongside amazing midwives and coming to terms with the fact that that would never be my role <laughs> because midwives have to deal with the blood and the guts and life and death and in a way that could be um, likened to maybe the role of a full-time organizer or, you know, even policymakers, right? There are some people that are doing some of that nitty gritty work. Um, there's some really ugly stuff, some really intense stuff that has to, and, and, and intricate, um, like the work of a midwife is really intricate and, and fast. Um, and then a lot of slow and then a lot of fast, um, work. Right. And I, um, through a lot of struggle to figure out what my role is in movement right now. As someone who didn't grow up super woke, right? Like I don't, I didn't come from a family of black Panthers. <laughs> I, you know, had black middle-class parents who were trying to give me a better life and made certain concessions and, and choices in order to do that. And, you know, and I came into uh, kind of a consciousness of struggle later in life, after I'd had children, um, through kind of my own evolution of faith and understanding of culture and all of these things. And so I'm not quite an elder, right? I didn't go through, I, I wasn't doing a lot of work and, and I'm not old enough to be an elder. Um, and I'm also not a young 20 year old out in the street. Like I can't be getting arrested every night, <laughs> you know, like be out, uh, you know, protesting at midnight. Yeah. Right. So I'm like a big, I, I consider myself a big sister in the movement. And so that, that dual role of really being that support piece, right. I see myself as a support person in movement. I do a little bit of organizing and mostly online digital organizing. Sometimes, um, some some pieces of uh, you know following other organizers doing some of the um, more would be in the realm of what people are now calling healing justice. Um, I'm really um, 
interested in what we're now calling movement chaplaincy, right? So again, a support role, what it's like to provide accompaniment, emotional, spiritual, relational accompaniment in movement spaces um, as a chaplain does in other like hospital or military or stuff like that. And so for me, um, this is about how do we actually live our full lives while we're struggling for justice at the same time, right? We need to be able to bring our whole selves along. And if we all die on the altar of justice while we're fighting for it, then there's nobody to actually enjoy it. Um, and so that's what I'm interested in. And so I see that very particular role, right? Like being a doula is a very particular role. I'm not catching babies if I don't have to, like I'm not, <laughs> right? So I'm not, doing kind of that intense work. Um, but it's still a different type of intense work. Often doulas are there longer, um, are, are even in a more physical role, um, staying up later, um, being the, the one that the mother is leaning on, right? So in movement, it's still like a very intense role that I play kind of helping other people work on their sustainability. So I have to take care of myself in order to help other people stay in the game long-term. I often say like, I just want us to stop dying. Whether that means being killed because of the system, because poverty, um, uh, environmental issues, uh, all of that kills, right? So I want us to stop dying. I want us to stop killing ourselves um, and, and hurting each other. And so, you know, that's where, I tend to focus in movement stuff. And that means a whole lot of different things that I end up doing from teaching to facilitating to um, participating in, in, in the creation of, um, of, of dinners where people can get together and be, be in each other's presence and kind of find themselves again and find each other again. Yeah, and, and it was beautiful when you were out with us at the Way Collective leading the People's Supper. Um, and I think so crucial to realize what it feels like to sit around a table with people whom with we, we inherently disagree uh, and yet are called to a brave space. Could you talk about that work for a moment and, and the role that, that the table and meals might play in facilitating some, some kind of movement toward unity in our time? Yeah, I mean, I see the table, I mean, it's one of my favorite um, kind of uh, images from scriptural texts, from holy texts, and I'm not an expert in kind of others. I pretty much stay in the Christian tradition, um, but even culturally, right, um, in rediscovering our, our own cultural context, the table is central to a lot of cultures. Um, and so, I mean, it is one of the most embodied places we can be. It's one of the most kind of primal, instinctual places because hunger, I mean, again, relating back to babies, like hunger is something that we're, we just have and we can't help and we have to somehow fulfill it. So then to, to realize that and say, okay, well, everybody needs to eat, um, and I think it's just, this is, it's so cool, so interesting to me that, you know, that this, this became kind of the central thing associated with Jesus. I mean, in a lot of ways, we've let it go, but I think people are trying to recapture that, right? That this, uh, like, why pick this thing that is so normal and everyday, um, 
but is but can also be so elaborate right we have these elaborate dinner parties we have these you know when somebody gets married right we have this reception that's a big deal some people only have a reception because it's such a big deal to sit down and have a meal together so to pick such a, a an everyday symbol is is an amazing thing and what it does is you know it's really weird to like sit down for a meal with somebody and like not talk to them <laughs> you know like or to pretend you don't see them or yeah <laughs> like right. you know so you have to notice the person in front of you you have to see are you know are they battered and bruised are, are like oh there's something in your teeth oh you're eating really fast are you really hungry like it 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 has the potential to bring their needs to the forefront if we're actually looking if we're actually engaging the other person our people that are sitting with us so and and i think the challenge then of the table is like then how dare you see that need and sit across from it and do nothing and so i think that's why it has it became that symbol right like i think that's the gift that jesus was trying to give us to sit together and be forced to kind of see what each other needed and then evaluate well what do i have to give um and and so i see it as just this never ending and then continual because we come back to it you know several times a day uh way of 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 evaluating our own needs, the other person's needs, seeing their humanity, remembering our own humanity. Um, and in that, we're responsible. We're both, we're both um, like responsible for what we're seeing and invited to um, be responsible to say what we need. So it, it, and that is a highly magical, spiritual opportunity, <laughs> if we let it be. You know, so that's yeah. what's exciting to me about about table and what can be so healing, potentially healing. And as we all know, who've had like rough family dinners, right, at Thanksgiving or whatever, we know it has the potential to be super damaging. And I think that's again why there was kind of chastisement in uh, of of early Christian communities, right? If we look in in some of the later scriptures, Galatians and Acts and things, you know, we see that there was this like, okay, get it together around the table, guys. Because <laughs> this is where it really, like, this is where any of the teaching that you've potentially received and heard shows itself. So if you can't get it together at the table, you are actually not learning anything, you know? And so, because they were actually coming together and having real meals and dumping whatever they had on the table and sharing it. That's what they were supposed to be doing. Exactly. But they weren't doing that, it was like, oh, wait a minute. You guys actually aren't getting anything I'm saying. You're, you have not learned any of these lessons. You're still keeping what you have for yourself. You're still being completely selfish. Um, you're still leaving out the people who have the least amount. You're still filling up those of you who have tons. And so you're not getting it. And so it was a way to actually kind of check the system. Is it working? And I think that we still have that today, right? What we're seeing is people who have a lot are having a hard time sharing people who are, have less are saying, hey, we still exist. Um, and we're having a really difficult time doing that kind of sharing. And so it shows up in all kinds of ways. So, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's it, how much it brings unity. 
I think it exposes where the cracks are, you know, and allows us to um, have a chance to rectify that. Yeah, I, I love that idea of need as a framing for gathering around the table. I don't think we hear that very often. And, and just that idea that you threw out that hunger is a need, that we all come hungry to the table, and that's what we're sharing in common. And I think that for me, that's a, that seems to be an invitation to those cracks that you mentioned. Where can we actually see one another's humanity in our need and honor that and, and give each other dignity there? And then amidst all the, the differences of opinion that we have in terms of politics and religion and, you know, society, um, th- those things become sort of, you know, secondary to that, that need that you mentioned. And I, I think we see that at the Christian table. Usually that's become needy to the communion table, you know, but, but I don't I always hear that around a dinner table. And I think that's such a beautiful invitation for people. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is too, what it exposes, I mean, some people are not coming to the table hungry, right? Because they are getting their needs met elsewhere. And so that's a question that helps us like be honest about what are the different levels of privilege and power that are coming to the table? Um, Who's missing from the table, right? Like all of these things become exposed there and then we have to decide what we're going to do about it. So that's another you know, way that it can be a gift to us. And, and, and then the challenge becomes how do we have an honest conversation about uh, what all of this means, right? And how we rectify it. Um, yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think just to return to Dr. King for a moment, there's, there's a call to love. I mean, I'm thinking of especially strength to love and again, some of his letters that, that you mentioned earlier. Um, where do you see uh, our contemporary society missing Dr. King's message and his heart? And in what ways have we, have we missed the point of, of his movement and his call to a sort of creative extremism in love or for love? Hmm. I mean, I think we've largely missed what he was saying completely. I mean, you know, I, he... Especially, you know, toward the end of his life, um, you know, the kind of triple evils, right? Um, I, I mean, the poor people campaign is trying to rec- trying to kind of resurrect this idea um, with 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 Reverend Barber and and uh, kind of that team and and then state by state teams and you know, there's some interesting positive movement. Um, uh, they have tried to escalate, which, you know, is interesting. I, I am a student of nonviolence and completely dedicated to nonviolence as a, uh, as a life path, um, not just a strategy. And so I'm completely 100% dedicated to it. And I am really struggling with and asking questions around what does that need to look like today? Um, because the way, kind of the, the method of nonviolence, um, beyond just the kind of individual, um, dedication to it has a, has a specific pattern. You know, we, uh, there, there is, you know, kind of a way of a five or six step process, right. Of, of nonviolence that, 
that was really codified by the by folks in that Southern Freedom Movement, um, King, Ella Baker, Fannie Lou Hamer. Um, always got to mention my my mental mentors there, um, and and others, right? That um, Bayard Rustin. I mean, folks who had in some ways this down to a silence. And I was taught nonviolence by uh, by James Lawson, among other folks who completely believe in this process that has been developed. And I, and I know some of the poor people campaign folks, and I know that's what they're following, right? This kind of have demands and, you know, have your actions and escalate and right. And we have people in power who are not moved by escalation. They're, they are not threatened because they have a source of funding and power that is not moved by, by our escalation. So, you know, I think, and, and this, uh, again, this call to civility on like on both the left and the right, this kind of everybody wants to play nice and just kind of, appeal to the better angels of humanity and kind of keep the status quo. So I don't really know like where we're going in this current moment. I mean, I'm just, cause I'm, it's sort of fresh right now. Cause I'm just, you know, woke up to the news of the um, Supreme court siding with um, you know, 45's administration on the Muslim ban. And you know, so, which is not surprising considering the makeup of the court, like in a million years, I didn't think it would go any other way with the current court, of course. Um, so, so it's, it, did, has, have we gotten any of it? I mean, we've gotten kind of this, this very dumbed down understanding of kind of uh, love everybody, be nice to people, right? And a very interpersonal, like the, the, I am a man, like very interpersonal understanding of treating each other. Well, I think that has for the most part permeated a majority of society, right? Of course you still have like flat out card carrying white supremacists. And even people who wouldn't say they are, they're like, I'm nice to the black person who works in the cubicle next to me, but they are, you know, but then you cut them off in traffic and they will like whip out a gun on you, right? Like I live in the deep South. I drive by trucks with rebel flags every day. It's not unusual. And those people will smile at me in Walmart, right? Like I get it. And so we have this civility, right? We have this like niceness to, you know, people aren't necessarily calling me the N-word in the store anymore. Sometimes, could happen, especially right in this moment. But for the most part, people are going to act right in public. But as far as like an actual deep social change, not like, I think we've gotten none of it. <laughs> like, none of it. And that's the part that's difficult because I think we did get some, we got some political change as in laws. We got, a, we got some laws passed and I am thankful to my elders and ancestors for the laws that were passed. 
And I think what we didn't do is fundamentally change who held the power and the money. And I see this globally because I've, I've now, you know, visited various countries that have a similar colonial history. Um, when the power and the money doesn't change and when there isn't um, an actual heart change, because we've changed behavior. I don't know that we've had the heart change, right? We still live mostly segregated and apart. We still don't have lives that are, that are joined in a way that is not just equal, but equitable. Until those changes are made, I think it's very difficult to say there's been, um, that the, the things that King and uh, other Southern freedom fighters were fighting for have actually um, like impacted and soaked into our society. Yeah, it strikes me that what you're bringing up is this tension of consciousnesses that we have in our country. And part of that is, I think, you know, coming from something like spiral dynamics and a biopsychosocial model of human development, we, we see these different deep value systems that are informing people's lives. And as you named, it's this, this power structure of money and and wealth and political power that are controlling the ways that that our society can even move forward in its consciousness. And we, we're not going to be able to move forward healthily until some of that power gets dissipated and and becomes more um, equanimous, if that's even a word, you know? And, and yeah. so so this this strikes me as a, a huge systemic problem in our country, obviously, but but uh I want to return to to that statement again and and just say that um, you said earlier in in our conversation that you had come to a consciousness of struggle and that Mm -hmm. that was an event in your life that that seemed to be a threshold that maybe moved you to a new place. Could you talk about that for for a moment? And and I I don't know the the poetics of of events like that in your own life that that brought you to a new place, because I think. Uh, in our society, we need to hear more examples of people moving. Um, and sometimes I think it's through the struggle that we we arrive on a new plane. Yeah. Um, James Lawson talks about how we have these moments in our lives. And I can't remember the word he uses. He doesn't say light bulb moment or watershed. He uses a different word. And I can't remember at the moment. But um, And he um, talks about... Um, a moment he had as a little boy where he uh, reacted with violence to a child who reacted with to violence or who, who in, inflicted violence on him and the conversation he had with his mother and how that changed him and then other moments in his life. And I've had several of those moments in my life and I can remember and point to each one distinctly. I, I do not use the term life-changing moment <laughs> like easily or, you know, frivolously because I've had those moments. Um, And, you know, I have seen in the last few years, other people having these moments. Um, I, like I said, I was raised um, by black middle-class parents. um, And my mother is probably I mean, you could say my grandparents were working class to middle class. My father's side was m- maybe 
was solidly working class and probably still is um, to kind of middle class. And so I grew up in what, um, you know, before the tainting of this, it was easier to say this, but the Cosby show generation, like my, um, we literally had some of the same paintings that were in the Cosby show house in our, in our house. Right. Like, and, and so I got the message, work hard, keep your head down, do your thing and you will get ahead. And so I think there's been an awakening among um, many people in that generation of black folks. Um, and then I think of folks of all kinds, um, many of us that were sold the like, um, uh, you know, the colorblind thing, right? Like, uh, our, I think along with, when black folks were just kind of trying to become upwardly mobile, those were who were not just left behind in, in inner cities and, um, you know, kind of uh, like in Alabama and um, other places in the South, kind of these black belts um, that have been left behind. Um, those that did kind of get out, just did what they needed to do to build wealth and, and become comfortable. And I think at the same time among um, white folks, especially, but among, among non-black folks, it was this colorblind thing, right? Like we don't see color. <laughs> Everybody just get along. That was King's message. Right? And so, um, you know, for me there was, and, and I was then enculturated with a very particular strand of evangelical Christianity that again was very much like, you need to focus who, on who you are in Jesus. And that is it no other identity actually really exists, only who you are in Jesus. And so I became 100% dedicated to that lifestyle. And, um, and so that's where I sat for a very long time. And I think, and, and for me, one of the things uh, that is one of those kind of light bulb moments for me was the murder of Trayvon Martin. And so I um, credit him with saving my life in many ways in being the catalyst of me understanding um, where I fit in the struggle. And uh, when he was murdered, I had two, I had three children, but I had two little boys <clears throat> um, who I knew would grow up to, to look like him in a neighborhood like he lived in. And to be a black mother sending black biracial boys out in hoodies the next day to school um, was a jarring, jarring event in my life. Um, and so it, 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 at that point, everything that had already been happening in my life converged. My deepening understanding of uh, oppression and injustice, um, kind of changing theology coming out of that very conservative evangelical framework, um, just just pressing against it, kind of like not fitting into it anymore, but not quite understanding what it was, and um, and and kind of always being involved in justice work, but not knowing it. Right, I had as a doula had been working to uh, you know change the birthing conditions of women in Nashville, Tennessee, where I lived, um, more rights for birthing mothers. Um, I had. As a, as a kid, been involved in environmental justice stuff and hadn't really known it. We had like, you know, we had an earth club and sold t-shirts to save the whales, you know, like, um, but just these things that I had always done to try and make social change, but didn't know that was quote unquote organizing. 
Um, and so all of that kind of came to a head when I realized, oh, wait a minute. I thought we had done all this in the 60s. Like, why is this happening? And what's going on here? Um, because it, it, first, it probably was easy to miss. But, you know, Trayvon Martin was a kid in a middle class neighborhood, like walking home. And so I, that shook me so deeply that this was my boy, right? And so I think a lot of, of people like me, um, who had, whose parents had, I think, desperately just tried to live out the promises of the civil rights movement. And so we weren't prepared. You know, we were now the generation that had been taken out of our, we didn't have strong black communities. We'd been taken out of those we had been, um, you know, brought up maybe in mostly white contexts with some still a little bit of community, maybe the black church. And it was like, oh, hold the, hold the phone. <laughs> we have not been given the full, full packet of information. Um, and, and so, you know, like I said, I've had several of those moments um, from standing in a genocide memorial in Rwanda and, and understanding the need to open open my mouth when I see any stage of genocide happening, like concentration camps being built in the U.S., to you know, um, to this Trayvon moment, to other moments that I've had, and so it's there is a continual awakening, right? If you're, we talk about being woke, and you know, I think there you continue to be awakened and. And so I think that's also why we have to be careful about how we talk about other people being woke or not woke or, you know, cause there's always things that we still need to wake up to. Yeah. It's a process. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, in your own awakening and your own work, that idea of creative extremism for love, can you, can you reflect for a moment on the role that creativity plays in your work and how, we need more ingenuity and more innovation in the way that we're even thinking and acting systemically for justice in the world? Yeah, I mean, I think this goes to kind of why I think healing and resilience need to be part of of our justice work. Um, You know, I, I... it's funny to me how, like, I don't, I don't know how we're supposed to get people to join our movements for justice because they are the worst. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like we have these late night meetings with like bad coffee and like horrible (laughs) snacks. Yeah, totally. In shitty moods. And we're, you know, like, why? Why would anyone come to our meeting? It's right. so horrible. You know, and you have to secure childcare and you have to feed your kids before you go and you have to, you just worked all day. No, it's ridiculous. Why would I go to any of your things? But we show up. So, you know, I think we have to, we have to think about ways that we're actually meeting people's needs. Like if you're going to have a meeting at night after work, you feed people. You, if you're going to, you know, you're going to have childcare, at least some, a table with stuff for the kids to do. Um, we have to celebrate together, right? If it's somebody's birthday, we have cake. If, you know, whatever, we've got to actually celebrate the victories, like take time to celebrate 
And that's also how we will be prepared to mourn together when something doesn't go our way. Um, we have to hug and kiss and tell each other we love each other and that we care for each other. Um, we need, we actually need pleasure in our movements. Um, it should feel good. This should be irresistible to be involved in our movements. Um, there should be dancing and singing and puppets and mm. plays and <laughs> poetry and yeah, all the things, right? Like all the things. Uh, and we shouldn't have to lay all that down so that we can just, we got to get out there and we got to... Um, so in this moment, I'm really interested in um, this idea of pleasure activism. Adrienne Marie Brown has a new book coming out, uh, I think this fall, um, that's just called Pleasure Activism. And she's been talking about it for a while and it's sort of grown out of the harm reduction um, kind of segment of movement um, because there is a lot of self-medicating, bad relationships, um, you know, all kinds of things that are, that people use to try and help get them through how horrible the world is. And, and then being someone who's aware of that and is trying to change it, um, you know, it can be so overwhelming that you just drink yourself to death every night that there's, there's, uh, you know, drug use and, you know, all kinds of behavior, um, I mean, this was a, this, again, being a student of the movement, this was something that was a problem in the sixties too, right? Like, um, there's, as if you read some of the books, especially about kind of the male female dynamic going on, uh, you know, the way people used each other physically, um, to, to be able to get through. Right. And so how do we actually talk about, um, how to make our movements full of more things that we love and that make us feel good and that are beautiful and joyful mm. and sensual and that respect that we have bodies as we're, you know, also using our intellect to make changes. How do we do all of that so that our movements become irresistible so that activism is the most pleasurable thing we do? Mm. Um, because pain and pleasure can coexist. I mean, I, I, it, we do it all the time, right? Anybody who is a runner or, um, uh, an athlete, I'm a dancer. And so I will go to the studio to dance and I'm like, this hurts so bad. Why am I here? Yeah. And I go back. Right. So why, yeah. like, what is that, that, that dance of pain, pain and pleasure? And I'm just, I'm really curious about that right now. And do you find it hard in your work to harmonize those two things because of the outward facing nature of activism and how vulnerable that, that activity is? Is it, is it hard for you to do that? Or do you find that pleasure pretty, pretty innately in your work? You know, I think when going back to kind of being woke, you know, or having those awakenings, I think at first there is a tendency to be all pain, right? There is this like, suffering everything right. Everything is broken in the world. We have to fix it now. And we like, you know, I, I see yeah. this often when people find out about a new thing, right? I had, um, uh, there, a friend of mine who's an active, who's a organizer and activist in LA. Um, 
he recently, I feel like, like really, you know, had a new awakening about the stuff going on in Gaza. And I just was in Israel, Palestine in January. And I was just like, calm down. Because all of his posts were just like, these mothers, blah, 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 like just so much anger, which is great. I'm like, access your anger. I'm all for accessing your anger, <laughs> blah, 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 you know. But it just, I, I hold space for that now when other people are having their moments. I'm like, you need, yep, you need to experience all the horror and the anger and the pain of that. And you need to figure out how to fit in where you get in. Okay, so now who's doing the work and who do you need to plug in with and who do you need, like, let's, let's bring some of that in, right? And figure out what that's going to then mean for you to participate. And so I think it's the same way with the pain and pleasure. I think at first it can just be, and at times, right? You have times of surges of like, today I am really just pissed off about this. Today I am angry. Today, everything sucks. Uh, Like, I just want to just start the whole world over. Like, everything everything is horrible. And then... I think we have to have moments of celebrating the the beautiful, joyful pieces, right? Like we have to learn to take those moments. And those that's really hard for me because I am like a let's get it done kind of person. I want to change all the things now. And it is hard for me to feel like the little things are, are good. Like if like I have seen people um, standing out at these detention centers and, or even going to airports now and, and being there when the children are there and saying, we love you. We're fighting for you. Um, Exchanging a moment with the children of like, you know, having their hand up to theirs on the outside of the bus. And I'm just like, but those are like that child may just have a like may smile may see a, may have like a little bit of light of hope. And I, that is so hard for me. Cause I'm just like, no, just change it now. We don't have time to just do something little. That's nice. Like, you know, or, or going into centers and like giving the children a, a like balloons. They did that. And I was just like, Duh! like part of me is angry about that. Like, no, that's wasting time. But then also like, actually, if that child has a little bit of joy for like two seconds, that's, that is also worthwhile. And we need to somehow like, that's that mixing of the pain and pleasure, right? Of like understanding that people need those moments in order to get through the rest of the pain. I think that's why we have singing in movements. We have the song, we have song. Like my mentor, um, Mama Ruby Sales is, is always bringing me back to the music of the movement because she's like, that's how we got through. And I'm like, oh, okay, yes, yes, yeah. yes. We need to sing. We need to like feel that that vibration that happens between people and in our own souls when we sing. And for really hardcore practical people like me, sometimes that can be difficult, which is why pursuing the joy and experiencing the joy actually becomes a discipline. Yeah, and it seems to me that 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 discipline is one that is a pathway toward healing and resilience. You talked about the need for both healing and resilience in the work of activism. Is there anything else in your own methodology or that you've experienced in the work that, that you would want to name for people who are doing this work in the world and finding it difficult to harmonize the pain and the pleasure? Is there any other 
you know, a pathway toward, toward the kind of healing and resilience that we all need. I mean, I think if, especially as we're talking about theopoetics, you know, a theology of the body, a theology of, um, of pleasure, of, you know, it's, it's so important to be embodied, right. To realize that, uh, that it's not just about kind of staying in our heads or achieving this, the, a goal of such and such legislation or changing the theology of this particular faith community, or, you know, it's that, all of this has to be lived out in our actual physical bodies on that. That is also spiritual, that connection of body and and mind and spirit is, is almost the deepest spiritual work. And so, um, I, I mean, I was, I was just at the allied media conference and, uh, in her session on pleasure activism, Adrienne Marie Brown said, uh, I think it was in that, she said something about like, every time I have an orgasm, I'm defying the, you know, the people that would not want me to live. Right. And so it's like, right. Yeah. You can actually enjoy your body in whatever way you can. Right. Cause we all have different bodies that do different things. And, and when we make space even for each other in that, right? When we say, oh, whatever, um, you know, you need to exist in this space, I'm going to make room for. We're already defying the empire that would say, there's no room for diseased bodies. There's no room for differently abled bodies. Um, you know, when I'm seeing in, in preparation for this action that's coming up, in July, you know, that they are putting stuff in there about this is going to be wheelchair accessible. We're working on, you know, how this is going to be accessible in these ways. I'm like, oh, we're not sacrificing individual people for the movement. We're actually saying this movement includes all of us or includes none of us. That is creating the world we want to see as we go. And there is the difference. That's why I think we'll win that's why I think we will actually change the world is because we're actually trying to build a different world that includes everybody. And so it's not just like, mm, how do we harmonize pleasure and pain and some kind of, um, you know, self uh, grandizing away, right? Like sell, some kind of way that's just about me, me time and like, taking a bubble bath and all of like a bubble bath is great. Uh, but it's not just about this kind of, um, self-indulgent pleasure. Um, it's about also how do we, um, how do we interact with each other? How do I, how do I bring my full self with, a, with whatever I carry and how do I then make space for what other people are carrying in their bodies? That it's just always about our bodies coming with us. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, how do we make sure that we're, because it's just a pleasure to be able to be there, right? Like, because so often we haven't made space for somebody who is in a wheelchair or somebody who has a cane. So that's actually part of this pleasure and pain together because they might be in pain coming 
but they're getting, they're participating in something they want to participate in, right? So it's all so wrapped up together in those moments we can then share together um, where everyone is actually welcome. That is a different paradigm than what empire gives us. Yeah. And could you reflect for a moment on the way that your womanist and indigenous theology informs that, that knowledge of the body and that affirmation of, of pleasure and creating spaces for, for different bodies to do this work? And just, just how does your, your theological perspective inform your work? Yeah. So I was raised theologically by indigenous folks. Um, my, my co-learning community is the Nates Community, North American Institute for Indigenous Theological Studies. And um, so that means it was designed by indigenous folks for indigenous folks. Um, most of my professors um, in, in, I did a master's program, but we have bachelors through, uh, through uh, doctor of ministry. Uh, we don't, I don't think we current, I don't think we currently have a PhD, but, um, and we gather once a year. And other than that, everything's online. Cause again, it's designed for indigenous people who do not leave their land because they are their land. So we, um, so I, so that was, that was my theological formation that was outside of myself and my own self-learning. And then I, on the way on that path, I also found womanist theology. And when I found womanist theology, I felt like I'd found my home. And uh, so both of those kind of streams and in deeply influence where I end up theologically. I love womanist theology because it just 100% starts off on the place that you carry in, as you do your own theological reflection, it comes from a place that you come from the body that you live in and the experiences you have, and there is no other way around it. And I think for a long time, theology has been like, it somehow exists somewhere in the sky and doesn't <laughs> come from the people that are actually writing the things. And it, you know, because we don't call theology white theology, even though we're talking about white German people, <laughs> white German men. Um, Right. And, and so like, it's just womanist just is like, yeah, I'm a black woman. And this is why I, you know, this is why my theology looks like that because it comes through the lens of me and what I know. Um, it doesn't ask me to set aside the body that I live in, in order to somehow do theology outside of it. Cause it just can't be done. And so that made a whole lot of sense to me. And I was like, of course, this is why I think this way. Um, and then uh, the indigenous as well. Uh, this was, I mean, that, that um, there's a lot of different reasons I decided to go with the Nates program. But for one, it just made me rub up against something that was different than from me and against First Nations, right? Like I wasn't going to be able to get out of this and just think about what it was like to be a black woman in America. Um, I was also going to have to deal with th the fact that I live um, on Turtle Island, that I live on stolen land in a place where trees have not been honored. And so uh, what does that mean? What is my responsibility to and from those people? Um, and so that is also very, it's not just embodied, it's connected to the land, which I think we also often don't do, right, is connect 
our theology or the theology that we're reading that someone has written, or even, you know, ancient texts, we don't connect them to the land um, and to the people. I mean, I, you know, still, I sometimes read scripture and I'm like, I just gloss over the place that's (laughs) mentioned because I'm like, I don't know what that's about. But that, like, you actually cannot read it without knowing what it's about, you know? But we have largely developed a Christianity in the U.S. that has no understanding of the place and the people that those words are connected to. And so I think in, in studying with indigenous folks, I've realized that that's not possible. There is no way to ever read anything without understanding the people and the place that it belongs to. Um, and so I think we have to take that into consideration in, in our theology, in our lives. And I hope that I do that as a, uh, you know, someone who comes from those streams of theology. Yeah. And what, what else can, can those who are maybe not exposed to womanist or indigenous theology learn? Is, are there anywhere that you would want to point them so that they can encounter this, uh, this for themselves and, and then start to inhabit uh, a theology that transcends the, the sort of Anglo Western norms and starts to root uh, us back in a theology of land and place and body. Uh, is there is there anything that you'd like to add and, and just point people toward in that? Yeah, I mean, the first thing would be a question that we asked at the People's Supper we had at, at The Way is, who are your people? Is to actually spend time, like write that down in your journal, have a conversation with a friend, and and ask yourself, who are your people? And people will answer that question in lots of different ways. And I love that about that question, but it helps to um, locate yourself in a people and a place first, or as part of this journey of reading other people. Because what kind of whiteness and Western philosophy culture does is, is, uh, is, is tag other people with a culture and not ourselves. Like somehow I'm just a blank person and they are a thing. And, and we do this as Americans <laughs> um, and particularly white folks do this because whiteness has stripped white people of an ethnic identity. Um, but even in general, as Americans, we kind of tend to exoticize every other culture and not our own, right? America is somehow like just normal <laughs> and everything else as a culture. Yeah, whatever that means, right. <laughs> right, whatever that means, yeah. that's, they're, they're cultured. Um, and so I think we have to first locate ourselves um, or as part of this process of discovering others, we need to locate ourselves. And then I think, um, I mean, everyone is always welcome to the Nate Symposium. Our next one is in Toronto next summer. It's probably in June. I don't know that they've released the dates yet, but please come to the symposium. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. We have people who are, you know, trained in theology, who that's what they do as their professors and pastors and ministers and things. We also have people who work and live in indigenous communities um, who are just interested in what it means to do that well. And then just folks who like indigenous theology, who want to know more, who are interested in it. So, and it's a very welcoming, open community because it's indigenous. It's, it's not, we're not based on, do we all believe the same thing? It's just not how we roll. 
Um, and we do participate in ceremony and all of that as well. And, and again, everyone is welcome. And, and there is a growing body of indigenous um, scholarship, um, theological scholarship that's out there. Um, it has been small up until now just because written word isn't primary. Um, I think that's, I mean, the main reason. Um, but it is out there more and more and, and can be found all over. I mean, it, Amazon, everywhere. Um, same with womanists, man. We're out here. <laughs> There's, you can find us everywhere. Um, you know, we are, we are probably now in kind of the second, maybe third wave of womanist um, theology. Um, and, you know, even going back to Alice Walker's work, which Alice would not likely consider herself a theologian. I consider her a theologian. Um, and, you know, it, it, but the, the, the womanist theologians who kind of came out of black liberation theology as an answer in some ways to the gaps in, in black theology and, and Cohn's work. Um, and others uh, did pull from Alice Walker's um, understanding of womanism um, and uh, in a way talking about black feminism and black liberation theology and kind of brought that together. So while reading it is for everyone, not everybody can be a womanist because it is again, particularly from a black woman's perspective, but you can use womanist theology and um, theory in your practice, in your, in your theological, you know, work. And so I think everyone needs to read womanist theology, starting with like Emily Towns is always a good bet. Renita Weems. Um, and you can find a variety of things, right? Renita Weems writes um, things that would be considered devotional materials and theological um, like textbooks, right? So you can get a variety of stuff in there. Um, I'd even put somebody like Nikki Giovanni in there. I mean, you know, but I have a very wide understanding of womanist, whereas some people might like pull it back in, especially yeah. when you're talking theology. So it just depends on what you want, but it's, it's out there. Yeah. Well, I think that's actually a great place for us to land the plane today too, because I love your naming of Alice Walker as a theologian uh, because she's a novelist and a poet and activist and, that is deeply theological work oftentimes. Yeah. Um, and, and so, so thanks for, for sharing that and for bringing your, your beautiful perspective to bear um, on theopoetics. How, how can we keep up with you? What else could you point us to, to, to keep up with what you're doing? Sure. Um, most of my work is parked at Faith Matters Network. So um, that is faithmattersnetwork.org. And you can sign up for our newsletter, um, which is sent out pretty infrequently. So you're not going to get a bunch of stuff. Um, we're also on Facebook at Faith Matters Network. Um, and we're, and I'm also, I also have a, um, a page for myself. It's Mickey Scott Bay Jones and I'm the only Mickey Scott Bay Jones, um, the justice doula. And that's my uh, kind of professional page. Um, all of that together. And I also have a website, MickeyScottBayJones.com. And I'm on Twitter, um, at I am Mickey Jones, um, Instagram, electric underscore lady underscore MSJ. <laughs> um, uh, and so I'm everywhere on all the platforms. Um, so yeah. 
Awesome. Well, thank you again for your heart and your work and your wisdom. Uh, it's challenging to me and I know it'll be challenging to our listeners as well. So thanks again for taking the time and for being here. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks. All right. Peace, Nikki. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Theopoetics podcast. You can find out more about Mickey's work by checking out the Faith Matters Network or by going to her website at mickeyscottbayjones.com. If you like what you heard here, you can log on to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform and subscribe and leave us a rating. You can also keep up with us on social media at at theopoeticscast or tweet at me at at tdburnett. Also, don't forget to check out our sponsors, ARC, at artsreligionculture.org. Once again, I'm your host, Tim Burnett. Love wisdom, create beauty, and make peace, everyone. Thank you.